Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition. As knowing why you believe what you believe, that is who Jesus is and what he's done, comes and prepares you to give an answer to everybody about that hope you have in who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's coming again to do. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together with a host of other brother pastors, we are on a journey making our way through the Christian dogmatics of Dr. Francis Pieper, a landmark, a monumental series of books from over 100 years ago devoted to the belief that still stands today, that when God speaks, he does so that we would hear him, understand him, receive what he says, and speak his word back to him, that is, confess it. So this idea of sound doctrine is not just a a man-made composition, a, a bunch of dreams and traditions of men, but in fact what happens when Scripture alone is believed, when faith alone then trusts that grace alone given in Christ alone, and it meets us as the answer to the problems in life that face us in this dark and evil age. St. Paul the Apostle exhorts all Christians to hunger for this, for this knowledge and substance of the truth, that we would watch our life and doctrine closely, he says, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Because the time is coming, he warns, when people will not put up with it. They won't listen to sound doctrine. Instead, they're going to turn aside to suit their own desires and gather around them a great number of teachers to teach whatever their itching ears would prefer to hear. But you, Christian, you're supposed to be different from that. You're supposed to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught and so encourage others. And that's the goal here at Cross Defense is to equip you to do just that. I have with me this week... Brothers in arms from scattered across the country, but uh, classmates of mine from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Reverend Pastor Jeffrey Reese, Senior Pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington, Pastor Timothy Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, and then Pastor Matthew Gooney of Ascension Lutheran Church in Niles, Illinois. Welcome, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Thanks. So, Coming into last week, we're still in a section dealing with the natural religion of mankind, the way that our flesh would prefer to, and and thus does by itself, think about God and how this opinion of the law or self-justification or religion of the work, religion of works, or whatever you want to call it, it establishes all the the ways that man creates spirituality in the world today. But Christianity stands against and opposed to this, totally different from this, strictly— by preaching the vicarious atonement of Christ, which is, in fact, a religion of of grace, of something we can't do, but has to be done for us and by him. So coming out of that, uh, Francis Pieper on page 13 still of volume one of his Christian Dogmatics writes that the older theologians must not be faulted, but rather commended for maintaining that essentially there are but two different religions, that the Christian religion is in a class by itself, and that all non-Christian religions belong to the class of false religion from which men need to be delivered. Uh, by older uh, theologians there, I think that he means Lutherans, right? They're the reformers of the church. But the main idea not being about them, but that in these two different religions, all of the one false religion are entirely false. And Christianity is here not just to save us from, from say, death or from pain. It's to save us from all these false religions, too. I think that uh, this this is one of the most insightful things that Pieper says about the difference between t- the two religions. I've used it often. The difference between all other religions are trying to rise up to God or trying to climb a ladder up to where God is by works or by various things that you need to do, whereas Christianity is all about God coming down to us. <clears throat> I think it's a very helpful thing 
because people get caught up in this all the time. People get caught up in trying to to uh, see how many things I need to do to make God happy with me, and uh, Christianity is opposed to that. It happens even in Genesis, the earliest chapters of Genesis, where um, Eve is tempted to rise up to God. Well, how? By eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see it in the Gospels, when the rich young man approaches Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to be saved? And we see it throughout the Church. I see it myself as well. Uh, we're always trying to figure out, what do I have to do in order to get God to love me? What do I have to do to get myself to heaven? Or whatever goal that we're striving for, we always place the impetus on us, whereas Christianity is, turns that on its head. So Pieper then quotes Luther, and he's going to do this enough to get us to, to the kind of tangent today and go focus on Luther, but he, fo- he quotes Luther directly to your point, Pastor Gunya, uh, about what this ends up doing to us. Uh, Luther says, The prophet Isaiah warns against the other religions which or because they can do nothing but wear down both body and soul, and all to no avail. And the stricter they are, the more they do to fill men with fear and grief and drive them to despair. And with, I mean, Luther's words are so poignant there, it's hard not to think about his own personal struggle that he had underneath the system of meritorious growth in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the, the great and everlasting ladder out of purgatory that he had to climb day by day by his struggles and prayers and, and trials. And once he was set free from it, he was just so uh, overwhelmed by that freedom he wanted everybody to share with it. But I, I also then think of the present day struggle that the average American Christian has in churches that are dedicated to success and to growth. They sometimes call it sanctification. They sometimes call it holiness. Uh, you, can, you can call it pietism. It really doesn't matter. It's the idea that, well, Jesus saved me then, but now it's time to get busy and do and grow and be, and that ultimately my final salvation still rests on that. If I don't do enough now as a Christian, I, I, I still might not make it out of this thing. And that's a dark cloud to live a life under. Besides the Besides your own book, uh, broken. Uh, the, I'm just now reading uh, Has American Christianity Failed by Brian Wolfmuller, and uh, he gets to exactly that point and traces the 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 way that American Christianity in general, regardless really of denomination, the way that it pushes that sort of thing, that the gospel is really for unbelievers, and now, now that you become a Christian, now that you've accepted Jesus into your heart, now you're under the law and these are the things you have to do. And it really does do exactly what Luther says. They wear down both body and soul. And so I, I've just started, but so far I'd recommend that book as a sort of a tracing of this. Well, it wears down body and soul, I'd say, for the lucky ones, because if you're broken down, then you're going to start looking to something else eventually, and hopefully to Christ. I think the ones that are in real danger are the ones that are patting themselves on the back and saying, yeah, I am doing all the right things. Jesus must really like me. I am thinking the right thoughts. I am feeling the right emotions. Therefore, how could Jesus not be pleased with me? Uh, at the same time, always ignoring their own sin, uh, minimizing it, explaining it away. I think that's a much more dangerous position, and you see that in a lot of uh, today's congregations as well. That really is where the faith is lost, right? The, the death of faith and the pride that would lead one to no longer need to seek grace. And it is the, the faith that's alive that ends up being 
crushed by the law because it believes the law, right? It actually believes it to its fullness and knows it can't live up to it. And so in that being crushed, it's driven to the despair, which at least gets hungry, right? At the same time, you can also despair your way out of the church too. I've run into a few evangelicals, or I should call them ex-evangelicals, that were so burdened by this that finally when they were set free from it by, say, the idea that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead and it's all a poppycock myth and, and the atheists are right, they clung to that because it let it let them at least out from underneath this tremendous weight of law law that, sadly, their church had not let them out from underneath. It is tough to live a life under constant and total condemnation. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. When you begin to view God as a totally judgmental God, one that doesn't love you, one that has a big stick and is just waiting for you to get out of line so he can crack you back into line, but as hard as you try, you won't go there. I could easily see why people who live under such a, a life would check out of the church, either just check out totally and say that, as you say, that the, this whole dying on the cross and rising again is total poppycock, or just find some other religion. I mean, a lot of Eastern spirituality, they don't condemn you of your sins, and finally you can feel as if you're free, but it's a false freedom. And what you'll soon find is that, as Pastor Winterstein said earlier, you're just checking into the same uh, type of religious system. It's still based on works. That's Peter's point, that the opinion of the law, the opinion of legacy is still there everywhere, whether it's biting you and gnashing you with sharp canine teeth or just gumming you to death. It's going to break you in the end. I, I think American Christianity in particular, but probably worldwide, I'm just more experienced with American, uh, is uh, lost the understanding of what it means to be set apart. And what I mean by that is from other religions. And you look at Leviticus, the whole purpose for the Levitical law and the Levitical system was to set God's people apart. That's what being made holy, that's what being sanctified means, to be set apart for a special purpose. And God does that through Leviticus. And what what American evangelicalism has done, and, and frankly, a lot of Lutherans have bought into this same lie, is they have approached the Old Testament, and Leviticus in particular, legalistically. And this has caused them all kinds of heartache, because, for instance, when, when you have a legalistic view of Leviticus, how do you stand up to the argument that folks on the pro-gay side of things try to make about, well, why do you quote Leviticus uh, when you're talking anti-homosexual, but you still eat bacon? And the average American evangelical has a really hard time answering that question, because they have basically put themselves in a corner with their legalistic approach to the Old Testament. When we understand that Leviticus is not about giving Israel a bunch of laws that they need to follow to please God, but it's to set them apart from other nations. I mean, the whole uh, drinking of blood, the whole no tattoos, all of those things were done for the purpose of separating them from the pagan religions who were using those kinds of practices for religious purposes. And when we've lost that sense of what it means to be set apart— and we have re- reduced Christianity to a set of rules you have to follow to make God happy so you can go to heaven, then we are no different than any other religion. And so you lose the distinction. The distinction is between, I think if I can, I can riff off what you said there, holiness and righteousness, and there's a tendency to confuse the two, as if to be holy is to be righteous. And while there certainly is a bridge between them in that if I am set apart by God to be near to God, and that's one of the ways I like to think of holiness is its proximity to God, well, then I can't really be evil for very long without getting destroyed by his wrath. So I do have to be righteous in order to be holy, but they're right. not the same thing. It's, it's, it's I don't get more holy by being more righteous. I don't gain holiness. Mm-hmm. I don't get into God's presence by 
by justifying myself, I have right. to be set apart by him. And another word that came up last week with the guys that were on was this word mortification. And increasingly for me, I think of, of sanctification, not in terms of a ladder I'm climbing, but in, in the death of myself in the present, and then the mortifying of my body and my flesh in the sense that who I want to be in myself is being uh, curbed over and over and over again, even unto death by God's law, so that justified, I'm only holified, made sanctified in Christ. Yeah. And even we Lutherans, you know, we'll, we'll be all in on justification as, a, as all God, as a monergistic thing. But then we, we want to view sanctification as a synergistic thing. You know, something we participate in actively. And in fact, really, sanctification is all God as well. We feel it more, I suppose, uh, in the mortification of our flesh and so forth. But we do not sanctify ourselves any more than we justify ourselves. Well, in that same way, we talk about objective justification and subjective justification, meaning that there is the, uh, the, the declaration that it's done for Jesus' sake, and then there is the—you feel it, you experience it, you believe it, you're aware of those words and of wanting to mm-hmm. believe those words. Well, the same applies to sanctification, but, but the, the heart of the matter is not the subjective experience of it. The heart of the matter is that it's done, or this being done to mm-hmm. you, no matter how that experience comes across. And if you don't have that— If all you've got is the religion of the law, then Luther's quote continues here. He says, Just as the woman suffering from an issue of blood only grew worse under the treatment of the doctors, so also these undertakings make the evil worse, and the hearts of men are distressed more and more. And I I couldn't help but think of, when when, when reading this in Dr. Pieper's volume one, uh, what he talks about in in his commentary, Luther, on Romans chapter seven, about how the law— even though we think it's the answer to our religious and spiritual needs, does the opposite of what we wanted to do. We wanted to make us better, but instead it makes us worse. Or as Paul says, sin came alive only after the law was preached to me, so that it, it amplifies my own wickedness in my own sight. And so that's why we're, for the rest of this, uh, this episode, we're going to dovetail out of Dr. Pieper's uh, uh, dogmatics. We will come back, but we're going to be looking at Luther's works, volume 25, his commentary on Romans chapter 7, where he's going to talk about this precisely this subjective experience as detailed for us by the objective word of St. Paul, what it means to be this saint and sinner at the same time. Uh, Any comments about what we just talked about, though, guys, before we go on? It's amazing to me how easily the opinion of the law comes back in. And there's always this danger that no matter how long you've been a Christian to sort of think, okay, I'm safe now in the sense of, okay, I'm good. I'm a Christian. I'm I'm holy. And the opinion of the law will sneak back in. Good thing God doesn't let us go that way. Uh, and I think that that's what this this is from Romans 7, that, that God still continues to use his law to keep us from trusting ourselves and we find I find it all the time okay I, man I haven't really I haven't really prayed or read the Bible recently um, now I'm gonna catch up well I mean what what is that catch up so that God doesn't zap me or something and so it sneaks back in very easily and so that's why we we still always continue to need both the application of the law and the gospel uh, no matter how long we have been Christians that's great. Like, where's the evidence that I'm saved, that God's Word is true, that I'm forgiven of my sins, that I can look forward to eternal life? And the first place that I always look is myself. What am I doing? What am I avoiding? Oh, hey, I'm doing pretty good here, and I'm doing pretty good there. So I I must be all right, and I must be saved. Where you're not supposed to look at yourself and 
and judge yourself by your own like fluctuating standards of what is good and what is bad. Uh, but you're supposed to look to Christ. You're supposed to look to his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. You look to the words that he says and how Jesus defines you, not how you're defining yourself. While we were living in the flesh, Dr. Luther says, without grace, our sinful passions, our desires, our inclinations, our drive toward evil, all these things that make up our old man and man in his unconverted state, aroused by the law, that is, by the dominion of the law, that is, they were recognized as existing and increased by the law, were at work. That is, they dominated and prevailed, bustled about, and carried on their disturbances in our members to bear fruit, their wicked works for death, that is, unto death, because death came through sin. That right there, that while we were in the flesh, we were kind of okay in our evil, and then the law comes, and it just, we keep trying to escape it. And in our attempt to do it and escape it at the same time, our wicked works get even worse and drive us just further into death. I see this, uh, you know, there's this sort of idea that there's only really one story in the world, and it's the story of sort of both damnation and salvation, that like you read a book, you read a novel, you watch a TV show or a movie, there's this sort of story, this theme that you can't sort of escape. And I see this all the time where where people in certain uh, television shows or movies uh, or novels even, they something happens to them, something bad, something they don't like, something that maybe even they have themselves have caused. And the more that they try to get out of it, the more they try to fix it, the more they try to improve their lot, the worse things get. And, uh, and I find that very fascinating that from people who are probably not Christians or maybe even religious at all, they see this sort of thing uh, under the law. They see it in life and they write stories about it and they write these narratives that, that are basically this specific idea that the more I do, the worse things get. Verse 6, Luther then says, but now, since we are in the spirit, that is Christians, we are discharged, that is, we're not quite in the same boat, through the grace of faith from the law of death. So that it's not that we're out of law or don't believe the law, but it's not over us anymore in the same way. So that is from the dominion of the law, which causes wrath and death without being weakened in itself, in which we were held captive in subjection because of our non-fulfillment. So that now we serve, so that now we are worshipers of God, so that now we are in the new life, so that now... We are in grace and regeneration of the Spirit, so that this spiritual man, the Christian, living by faith, no longer is under the old written code, which held the old man in captive. So now he's setting up then, this is Paul, and then Luther is speaking of Paul, the distinction between that life of constantly trying to do better and getting worse, and the the paradoxical reversal of fortune, the Christian life of not necessarily trying to do better, being declared better, and then, well, not getting worse, but maybe even without our effort. Luther is expanding on uh, Paul's point in Romans 7, verse 6. The law is still there. The law is still in force. Our old Adam is still alive and well. Uh, he wants to do his own thing and have his own way. And as much as he wants to do the law, and that's part of his problem, he's also going to falter under it because he's not going to be able to, and he needs to be daily drowned, as Luther says. So it's important that we keep the law in view, even as we realize that we are not saved by doing it. I find it fascinating that Paul uses, you shall not covet, because coveting is like the one commandment that is not obvious and visible 
all the other commandments you can see. You can see murder and adultery. Obviously, you don't see the heart from which it comes. But but coveting takes place primarily in your in your mind. So when when Paul raises the point of not coveting, he's showing just how deep it goes that you probably wouldn't even think. You wouldn't even think, oh, I shouldn't want something that God has given to someone else. But the law says that just shows the root of your sin in your heart. And the law uh, brings that out, that it has to be revealed to us, the depth of our sin. Otherwise, we will not acknowledge that we are sinners. We'll say, yeah, I made a mistake. Yeah, that wasn't very good. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this. But, you know, overall, I'm a good person. The law says, no, let's go a little bit deeper and let's go all the way into your mind, into your thoughts, into your heart and show that the root of this sin is not just the outward experience or not just the outward effects of it, but it it goes all the way down. And then when sin comes alive, we're put to death so that Christ can raise us again. Right, and that's verse 8 then, right? So sin, finding an opportunity, as Luther says, taking the occasion that is not created by the law, but then it's going to use the law because uh, to, to, to make it so that the, the, the sin is available and acting upon us. Because, and this is really strange how Paul says this, where there is no sin, the law gives no opportunity. And uh, Luther kind of points us to the evident cases of, of saints and righteous men. I'm not quite sure what he's getting at there. Maybe you guys get that there. Um, but that this, none of this sin taking an opportunity actually weakens the commandment or the law itself. Rather, it shows you just how sinful sin is that can take this good thing of God and use it against us, uh, that it can convince us to take it and, and really claim it, it, the law as God's replacement, uh, that I'm going to stand upon this law and, and be fine without God. Yeah, several years ago, I, I had to visit my doctor, and the doctor didn't like something he saw in the blood work, and uh, he told me that I should not eat certain foods, and the one that I remember him saying was, don't eat any more ice cream. Now, to that point, I had not eaten ice cream in years, and I rarely thought about ice cream. And I thought to myself, yeah, absolutely, I should not eat ice cream. It doesn't have the stuff in it that I need. It just does bad things to me. But from that moment on, what could I not stop thinking about? Of course, ice cream. cream. And uh, everywhere I turned, I saw more ice cream. And the craving for ice cream just grew and grew and grew, even though the doctor said it, and I agreed it is good for me to not eat ice cream. So within just a couple days, there I am, eating ice cream. Now, was the doctor lying to me? Did he say something bad to me? Uh, No, absolutely not. The doctor was speaking truthfully, and the lack of ice cream would be good for me. But until the doctor said these things, I had no desire for it. And the same is true with uh, with thou shalt not covet, is the one we're using as an example. As soon as God says thou shalt not covet, because of the sinfulness of my own human flesh, what do I want to start doing? Coveting. So as far as I was concerned, before the law came, I had no sin. Apart from the law, without the knowledge of the law, sin, even though it was there in me, it lied dead so far as my awareness was. It was not known by me, Luther says. Uh, And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, And I was once just as anyone else alive, not because there was no law, apart from the law, apart from the knowledge of the law, and therefore without sin, but when the commandment came, sin effectively was known, and now, now my death was in me, right? As Blessed Augustine says, sin became to be apparent to me. I knew I needed to be saved. Uh, We're talking about Luther on Romans chapter 7, as well as Dr. Francis Pieper talking about what false religion is here on Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Today, talking about how the law is God's way of exposing our sin within us and therefore doing the opposite of what we think it ought to do, which is give us life. Quite quite the opposite. Instead, sin becomes worse the more the law is among us. And, And for that reason, we're looking at Dr. Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter 7, where he kind of deals with one of the primary texts for this understanding in the Bible. My guests today are Pastor Jeff Reese of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington, Pastor Timothy Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, and Pastor Matthew Gunia of Ascension Lutheran Church in Niles, Illinois. And we left off uh, with Luther talking about Romans 7 verse 9, about how, again, Without the law, sin was not apparent to him. He didn't even recognize that it was there. But then, as Blessed Augustine said, sin became to, began to become apparent to me once the law came, and I could see, well, now God says this is evil. Well, look, there it is. It's me. Yeah, the, the law points out our sin to us, but the law never takes away our sin. Um, only Christ can take away our sin. Uh, so when Augustine says the sin began to become apparent— well, recognizing that the sin exists doesn't put me on the road to say, oh, okay, now I know what God wants from me, so now I will go about the business of saving myself, of removing sin from my life, and then God will be proud of me. No, the knowledge of the sin and the sin becoming apparent not only strengthens the sin within me, or at least it strengthens within me the temptation to chase after sin, but helps me to a greater degree to recognize just how much I need Christ and what Christ does for me outside of me. I find the promise in Deuteronomy, let's say, about do the law and you will live by it. This is where a lot of times law and gospel gets confused because it, the law does hold out the promise of life. It does say this is the way that you, were to, you should get life by yourself. You keep the law and you will live. Um, the contrary is, of course, you don't do the law and you will die. And that's what the law does to sinners. If we were not sinners, the law wouldn't say that to us. It would simply, uh, so, it, and it, so the law holds out this promise of life, but it doesn't, it doesn't get us there and it, it can't provide any way of getting there. It just says, here it is, do this and you will live. But as Luther quotes, Matthew 19, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, but the written code kills. It holds out this promise of life to us, and so we think, well, if it holds out the promise, then it must give me the ability to do it, but it doesn't. What I think people will struggle with then is like, well, how can you say that, Pastor Winterstein? Where, where are you going to get this idea that Jesus said, keep the law and you will have life, but but it, it actually is a failed, well, promise? And, and the answer is the next verse, right? Verse 10, that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And verse 11, for sin, season an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, but but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it, If I were righteous, if I were good, when Jesus says, keep the commandments and you will live, I would have. And again, our old Adam wants to go back and live according to the law. And so, so it's a really dangerous place to be, to be in a situation where you feel like you are doing a good job of, keeping the law, of doing what you need to do to please God. This is the danger of books like The Purpose Driven Life, because they focus all this energy on helping you do that. And possibly the people who are in the most spiritual danger out there, among Christians at least, are, are those who believe they've got it all figured out. They're not the people who come into my office as a pastor. People who come into my office are the people who are reflecting what Paul is saying here. 
they have been, they've come face to face with the law and it's crushed them, it's destroyed them. And they are scared, they're terrified uh, that uh, God's wrath is theirs and nothing more. And so they are ready to hear the gospel. And so I don't spend a lot of time on the law with them. I don't need to. It's already done its work. Uh, I bring, I, all I do is usually surprise them by acknowledging it because they're usually used to somebody saying, oh, it's okay, you're a good person. And they're a lot of times shocked, especially if they're not, uh, you know, lifelong Lutherans. They're shocked to hear this pastor affirm their guilt and affirm the fact that, yeah, you are a schmuck. You know, you are a, 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 a sinner. Um, but then to move on and to point them to Christ and to uh, uh, proclaim that forgiveness uh, and, and show them what the gospel really is all about. Um, this is precisely what Paul is getting at, and it's precisely what, what Luther is trying to get at as he expands on it. So obedience to the law brings life, but I, I'm not the guy who's obedient to the law. I, you, can, you can take a look at the biography of myself I'm writing. I have not kept the law, neither has Pastor Reese or Pastor Winterstein or Pastor Fisk, but there is one who has kept the law and kept it perfectly, and that one is Christ, and through Christ's obedience, we have the life that Deuteronomy speaks of, the life eternal with God. Paul's concern in, in chapter 7, though, I think, is, is also to defend the law. He, he's trying to say that even though this is the work the law is doing among us, that is to expose our sin, to, and, and that way just amplify it, exacerbate it, like, like picking at a wound, right, until it bleeds. That's what the law is doing to our sin. So our sin gets worse under the law. The law isn't bad in and of itself. And so he asks in verse 13, did, did that which is good then bring death to me? And it's by no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that the sin might be shown to be sin. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. This is just how bad sin is, that it takes a good thing and kills you with it, <laughs> right? That's how wicked we are, that this, this, the design of creation, the very will of God for all of creation to exist in is now a tool for murdering us and murdering each other. And so through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. It's not that the commandment is sinful, it's good, but we are so bad that we can't take that good thing and get better. We take that good thing and we get worse. Yeah, and we don't even see the law as good. Um, as it, the quote from Luther, uh, uh, it pretends that what is contrary to the law is good and sweet and makes the law appear harsh and hard. And this is this is sort of the depth of our sin, that we are completely turned around to the extent that we hear God's own words as evil to us, as bad. Uh, and we so we say, that can't be good. What I want to do, contrary to the law, that must be good. And that just simply shows the depth of our uh, corruption, that we can hear God's words and say, no, those can't be good. Yeah, and, and this kind of leads right into to verse 14, where Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then you have Luther expanding that uh, on that a little bit. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, because it requires the Spirit and makes demands concerning the possession of the Spirit. But I, and any other man you wish to name, am carnal, sold by the transgression of Adam, even without my own sin, under sin. And this just goes more to the point that, yeah, are, are we supposed to do the law? I mean, yeah, but it's not the doing of the law that restores us to God, because we're already born under sin. We're already lost. You know, that's what baptism's all about, is, is uh, pulling us out of that pit. Out of that uh, pit and, and, and into the mystery 
of loving mm. the thing that's killing us and hating the thing that we love, right? Mm. I mean, and mm. this is where he's, he, he actually has to just say this. He says, I don't even understand my own actions. I, I exactly. do what I don't want. I, I, I do the thing I hate, but then I, I want the thing that I don't do. And Luther says, the evil that is at work in me, according to my flesh, I don't understand it. To my flesh, it appears to be good, but then it, it deceives me and it kills me. And yet the good that as a Christian I now have become to come to love, well, it, it keeps running into the lust of my heart. And so contrary to the law, I do evil and I lust and I hate. But then according to that inner man within me, worked by the Spirit, worked on me by the Spirit, right? Passively being raised by words about Jesus, that one continues to despise the very thing it sees me doing and repent of it and ask for forgiveness for it and desire to be free from it in the last day. It's cyclical in a sense, and that you're going to go around and around, but it's not even cyclical. It's a constant two things. It's it's to be in two natures, uh, a Christian and and the sin within me. And he's going to get to that, that it's the sin within me and not me anymore. So you don't want to finally identify who am I. I'm the saint. I'm not the sinner. But then I'm living with the experience of that old man still with me. I think the evidence of the Holy Spirit, uh, in one sense, part of the work of the Spirit, besides pointing you and bringing you to Christ uh, to take you out of your sin is uh, the fact that there is that crisis and that you experience it. If you did not have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't experience that conflict between your flesh and the, and, uh, the Spirit. You wouldn't experience that, man, I hate this sin that I do, and I, I long to do the law of God but I find uh, this other law at work in me. You wouldn't experience that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think that's something that sometimes trying to put Romans 7 like before Paul is converted or something uh, doesn't take it, doesn't take, uh, doesn't acknowledge that, that without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't acknowledge that sin uh, was sin at all. And you wouldn't acknowledge that what you're doing is against God's word. And you wouldn't acknowledge that what you should be doing and you, what you want to do, in fact, by the Spirit, is the law of God. You wouldn't acknowledge that and you wouldn't have that crisis uh, if, if, the Holy Spirit wasn't, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. This reminds me of uh, one of my favorite books to give to people who want to understand Lutheran theology but are kind of struggling with, with a, a technical approach is The Hammer of God. Uh, it's such a wonderful uh, set of stories uh, that at the same time convey a really good Lutheran, basic Lutheran theology. And there's the scene at the, um, in the first chapter of the first novella where uh, Johannes, the dying man who is in terror that he's going to die and go to hell because he's thinking back to all of his uh, sins and thinking he wasn't repentant enough or, or he had not done enough. Uh, and his friend Katrina is is asking him questions and kind of trying to lead him to the gospel. And she asks him if he has sin in his heart, and he's and he answers back, yes, altogether too much. And she said that should make you it clear to you that God has not forsaken you, because only He can see sin who has the Holy Spirit. And and then he says, and then Johannes asks her, well, does that mean that it's a work of God that my heart is unclean? And she goes, no, that your heart is unclean. That is the work of sin, but that you now see it. That is the work of God. Um, and then when he asks, why haven't I received a clean heart? She responds that you might learn to love Jesus. And I think she mean, by that she also means trust in Jesus. Um, and it, he, she goes on later to say, if you had received a clean heart and for that reason had been able to earn salvation, to what end would you then need the Savior? 
If the law could save a single one of us, Jesus would surely not have needed to die on the cross, because the law worketh wrath, and God stops every mouth by his holy commandments. Um, and, and so she's making the, uh, the point that it's not about you fixing up your own heart. And, and the, the last thing she says to him is the words of St. John in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Nothing has ever quite depressed me as a pastor quite so much as going to the, the deathbed of a, of a member and hearing them begin to tell me about how happy they are with their life and how it all mm-hmm. turned out good, and they're proud of their children. Yeah, they're, they're not Christians anymore, but, but I'm really glad because they're happy. They've done well for themselves. And they, they sit there, and they, they talk and talk. And I, and I sit there, and I think as a pastor, how am I going to get you ready to hear about Jesus? And mm-hmm. you, you, do the, you, know, you don't abandon them. You, you say, well, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about your sin. Uh, I'm here to tell you about why you're dying. You're dying because you're a sinner. And I'm here to tell you about what you believe. I know you believe it because you come to church and you take the body and blood of our Lord on your lips. And you're going to get it now in a moment. But you have to like, you have to preach through this wall of self-justification. And how much better to find yourself at the bed of Johannes who says, I can't be saved. And all you got to do is say, mm-hmm. yeah, you can. That <laughs> Jesus did it, right? Uh, and how much of, of, uh, of the Christian life then shouldn't be, isn't it supposed to be, preparing for a death in which I don't justify myself to my pastor, but instead say, Pastor, come here, I want absolution, I want the Lord's Supper, and then leave me alone, I'm going to go home. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is that not what our goal is? And what, what does it say about a church when we've forgotten that? Yeah, I think our idea of what a, a good or a blessed death is has shifted because we've absorbed what the culture says is good and what the culture says is beneficial, so that, so that dying without... Uh, a lot of pain and suffering or, or dying without, um, you know, the sort of things that go along with death, um, that that's what makes a death good or blessed. And death in fact, with dignity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, there is no dignity in death and there shouldn't be uh, mm-hmm. because it causes us then to turn to the only one whose death actually does something good. Uh, and because he's raised from the dead, uh, then, then there's, something there that actually might make death blessed and uh that like the catechism that we pray that at the end of this life i'd be taken from this veil of tears uh, there's a blessedness that uh, the world cannot understand and a peace the world cannot understand if as christians we're looking for a death without regrets or a death without pain or a death without oh gee i wish i would have done something different well as a christian you're just not going to get that and the law makes it clear to us you can take a look at the law and say, say something like, you shall not, thou shall not kill. Okay, that's great. I, that's the kind of life I want to live. That is good. But then as you look through your life, you'll see how you're self-causing people so much pain, physical pain, emotional pain, and you'll regret that, and you'll feel pain and sorrow because of your sin. So you could start to avoid doing the things that you say are good, and then the very things that you don't want to do, those are the things you constantly find yourself doing. So if you're going to be sitting on your deathbed and saying, yeah, I lived a pretty good life, well, you're lying to someone, uh, to your pastor, to yourself, and you're even lying to Christ. You didn't live a good life. Christ lived a good life for you. Behold the Lamb of God. And it is that idea of the Lamb of God, that knowledge of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that brings you to the point where you're able to actually not be afraid of confessing your sin anymore. You can say with Paul in Romans 17, the sin that dwells in me is, is evil. 
I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, that is as, as I'm born, how I am now. And I know that this desire to do what is right that's in me, but the inability to carry it out, that is not going to leave me condemned at the end of the day. I can be honest about the fact that I do not do the good that I want and the evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And I can call that sin and I can call that me and I can know that it was nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus. All of its debt paid by his blood so that now I also am alive in him, totally separate, right? And that goes back to to chapter 6 and all that baptismal language. When you confess your sins to Christ, you're not shocking him. He already knows that you're a failure. He already knows how you've fallen short. He's already known that you say, yes, this is what I want to do and don't do it, or no, this is what I want to avoid, and then you go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, Confessing your sins to Christ is a good thing, because it recognizes that these are the sins for which you died. These are the things that you have shed your blood for. These are the things of which I'm forgiven. The individual confession, the way that it's written, is helpful. It's helpful to me, at least, uh, as actually, because sometimes we can say the general confession so many times that we lose the fact that my sin is specific, and therefore Christ's uh, the gospel is specific, um, but the the individual confession um, it's it's it gives you the words of the law by which you can actually confess. That is, say the same thing as God says about your sin, and uh, and so um, you know for 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 hearing that law and for for being brought uh, to the point where you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, I find that that particular expression of the law, um, that that's helped me. One of my favorite things about uh, chapter 7 of Romans and this particular section of chapter 7 is uh, the number of people who have come to me in the past and continue to come to me with struggling with things like addiction, uh, same-sex attraction, um, uh, other kinds of disorders where they feel like their life is out of control and they can't do the things that they want to do, that the right things they want to do, they can't do. They can't quit the substance abuse or they, or they can't resist the, they're, they're struggling to resist the sexual attraction and not just homosexual issues, but even heterosexual uh, sins. And they all say the same thing. They all say, you know, people don't understand what it's like. And I love to open up Romans 7 and I says, I, I say, there's maybe people out there who don't understand, but I do because I struggle with my own sins I do things all the time that I shouldn't do, and I know I shouldn't do them, but I do them anyway, even though I hate that I do them. And I said, and above all, you know, Paul understands, and here he is describing exactly what you're struggling with. And although we, we've implied it throughout this conversation, it should be said explicitly that we should strive like, wholeheartedly to live in accordance with the law, live a life of righteousness, live a life that, that gives honor to the gospel, all the time recognizing that it's not because we live in a particular way that we are saved, but we're saved through Christ. Therefore, we strive to live a holy life. That's why we we want to really admonish our people about worrying so much about living a life of happiness in this world. That's not what we're about. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And as Jeff Gibbs, uh, professor we all had at, at seminary, constantly says, being poor in spirit is not a happy place to be. But it is a holy place to be. It, exactly. It is a holy place. Uh, we, we are not supposed to be at home in this world. We're not supposed to be comfortable, happy, satisfied. If, if we are able to find contentment in the gifts God has given us and in the life that we have, then let's thank God for it. But let's not let that be the, 
goal for our life or the measure of all things. That's a worldly uh, agenda, not at all a spiritual one. I'll say it again. Sanctification is mortification, and that is the result of believing in your justification and the continual experience of being forced by Jesus, thank God, to believe in your justification by his work and not by your own. So that, I'm going to go to verse 23 now to kind of summarize this entire thing, and I think this is what Peter was getting at, I think it's what Luther's getting at, it's what we've been getting at, that there is really, for the Christian now, two different realities constantly at work. And, and and Paul calls them laws, but he's not actually talking about laws you keep. But there there is the law of my flesh lying close at hand, the fact of my sin that is here with me, and I always have it with me. And then there's the law the reality of the Holy Spirit in my mind by means of the Word of God, by means of the Gospel of God, the absolution of God, also always right here with me, washing away and, yes, even mortifying my flesh by insisting that Jesus is enough, even and especially because I am not. It is that reality, that distinction between law and gospel, the difference between the law of the flesh and the law of the mind that makes Christianity Christianity and sets it apart from all the other religions of the world that only have the law of works. You're, t- you're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We hope it's been beneficial to you today trying to distinguish law and gospel and be equipped to give an answer for those who would ask you why you don't hope in the law and you hope in Jesus instead. My guests have been Pastor Jeff Reese of Zion Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington, Pastor Timothy Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, and Pastor Matthew Gunia of Ascension Lutheran Church in Niles, Illinois. <laughs> Sorry, where in, the Cubs are still the world champions. Oh yeah, we're the excellent. Um, just just for this year and maybe never again though. So get ready for it. Cross I'm defense. Satisfied. Say it again. I'm satisfied. Cross defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy. You can check them out at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them and let them know about the good work that they're doing. How much you appreciate that and all the more. How much you appreciate them bringing you cross defense right here on KFUO. Again, I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Checking out and until next time, saying, rock on.